0: And thank you for listening to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here. Today I have with me Mache Smooch and Carolyn Clark. Thank you so much for being with me today. Of
1: course. Glad to be.
0: So today we are going to be talking about the Maseray Folk Dance Ensemble, which is formed here in Atlanta. And I just was wondering can you tell me a little bit how your dance ensemble came to be?
1: Of course. Yeah, so so I originally came to Atlanta in uh, January of 2022, and I just love dancing so much that I was like, "All right, I need this to be a thing here," and and so I decided to form something like it, and I formed Mazure. I I actually got in contact with a couple of you know local Eastern European dance studios and uh, decided on the spot uh, the Volga Dance Academy in Doraville, uh, in order to hold our practices. And it was really kind of trial and error to see, you know, what dates would work with everyone, what times and, you know, to see who, who we can get. But I think overall right now we have a fantastic group full of really fun people and people that just love to get together like once, twice a week and, and just dance.
0: That's awesome. So you just you came, you wanted to dance and you made it happen.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love
0: that. So can you tell us a little bit about your background in dance?
1: Sure. So I started when I was pretty young. Uh, My parents actually signed me up for a very small local group uh, in the suburb of Chicago known as uh, Medina. Uh, The group's name was Viswa. And and ever since then, I mean, they kind of signed me up kind of like, oh, you know, this is kind of like a fun recreational thing, you know. But I mean, I just went like, you know, heads down, I loved it. You know, I just completely fell in love with the rhythms, the music, the you know, the, the everything that really you know came came with it. And from then on, you know, I've been you know go, I've been dancing with plenty of different groups, and not just like Polish groups, but also like I danced with like Ukrainian groups and Czech group, and and even like went back to direct the same group that I uh, had joined as uh, when I was when I was younger. And then I moved to Salt Lake City uh, when I was 18. And, you know, and there, yeah, I mean, there, there's still there's still quite a bit of Polish people, but there wasn't a group. And so that's where I had my first experience of founding and directing a group. That group was known as the Karpaty uh, Polish Folk Dance Ensemble. And at one point, I directed that group for seven years. And at one point, that group had about 50 people in it, which was a massive accomplishment. And in fact, that coincided with the 100-year anniversary of Polish independence, and so we had a gigantic gala concert, invited a couple of our uh, dance group friends from uh, Tucson, Arizona, the Laconic, uh dance group from, uh, from Tucson. And we just held a massive concert and it was such a success. But about about two years ago, I decided that due to my career prospects and, uh, and I guess, you know, just due to climate and everything, I decided to make a move down to Atlanta and to, uh, you know, really kind of embrace the scene here.
0: Awesome. So can you tell us what some of your favorite dances are, the history of the dances? I would love to hear what some of your favorite dances, both of you, what your favorite dances are and why. And also, if you could tell us a little bit of the history of those dances as well.
1: Of course. Yeah. Um, I'll let Caroline start with uh, her favorite dances. (laughs) (laughs) Hi Caroline. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Well, I'd love to pick up on a few things Maché said, because... I think what I bring to the conversation is just a a breadth of dance experience and studies in dance. I've immersed my life in it, and I was interested in what he said in terms of coming to Atlanta and making the group happen and making the classes happen because he loves to dance. And I have seen this in many different places with many different kinds of dance people it's part of what they love to do it's they want to continue to do that kind of dance so they need to start teaching in order to have the other people to dance with <laughs> and actually wrote a paper about this but that's neither here nor there i think this is a it's a common occurrence in many different aspects of life you know as we try to find people to do the activities we love with and that make us feel whole so i don't know if that's podcast worthy but I just have to say these things because I'm a teacher. (laughs) Absolutely. I think you're great for the podcast. Well, I'm relatively new to Polish and Ukrainian and Eastern European dance. Um, I began taking lessons with Maciej really because of serendipity. I saw the listing cross-posted with Dance Atlanta on Facebook, Dance ATL. And there were some of the first opportunities and classes to come along my radar since the pandemic. So I didn't really get to dance for at least a year. During the pandemic, all the classes were closed and they were at a a time that I could attend. And I have always been someone that I will try any form of dance. I love dance. I have taken many different kinds of dance in my lifetime. So I thought, sure, I'll give it a shot. And I'll probably like it. (laughs) And sure enough, it was really fun. Taking classes with Mache is a delight. You know, it's he's super kind, which is a lovely, lovely quality to have in a teacher. So it was terrific to take those classes and start up again. I had so much fun and honestly. The thing that gives me the most pleasure about any kind of dance is dancing with other people in person i could not stand dancing on zoom and taking classes on zoom it was the best we had but it wasn't great so just being in a room with people you know studies have been done the research already exists that dancing in person with other people is a powerful way to combat stress, anxiety, depression. It's good for your cognitive functions. It staves off dementia. It's good for you physically. There is no other activity that's better for you, mind, body, and soul, than dancing with other people. The research is there. Peer-reviewed, double-blind, control group research, hard research. So, um <laughs> getting back to major. You know, we started with polka, love the polka, super fun. But what really what I really love the most is Chardash. And the reason is because of my background in ballet, of all things. But there's a very strong crossover between Eastern European traditional dances, so-called folk dances, and Russian ballet. When ballet was when ballet was thriving in Imperial Russia at the end of the 19th century, there, were, there was a lot of interest at the same time, choreographically, with these folk dances. So you see a lot of ballets, like Raymonda, uh, a lot of the big ones. I want to say Sleeping Beauty, but I might be wrong on that. Anyway, they have a chardash section in the ballet. And I actually um, grew up doing those dances in a ballet context. And so even from a young age, I was doing chardash with these red go-go boots on stage. And it was was a balletified version. It was traditional from the ballet choreography, but I had familiarity to it. So when we started doing different kinds of dance, dances, and especially the Chardash, I was all over that. Um, I was clicking my heels like nobody's business and dominating, if I do say so myself. um,
0: (laughs) For some of our listeners who might not be as familiar (laughs) with ballet or not have that much of a ballet background, could you kind of explain the movements that go with the the Chardash section?
2: I'll let the expert do that. I want to say one of the great pleasures of working with Maché is that is his expertise because I'm very picky about my teachers because I know my stuff, and he knows more than I do, which is well, thank you fabulous. And so I don't think that's single, true, but <laughs> every single class that I take, I learn something from Machi because he knows the background of all the dances. When we talk about the cultural connections, we can maybe talk more about that aspect of it. But he is an expert, and it just really feels like a very, quote-unquote, authentic experience.
0: That's amazing. Yes, I would love to hear uh, some of your favorite dances and the background behind them and why and the movements, if you could take us through that for our listeners.
1: Of course. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of want to backtrack to Carolyn's description of the Tardash, which is actually originally a Hungarian dance. And the way that it actually uh, entered into Poland and uh, and introduced itself to Polish dance, and mainly in the southern regions, was through the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the army. And essentially what had happened is that the Austro-Hungarian Empire had recruited, you know, so had offered to these people in the village, you know, hey, we offer, you know, good pay, you know, good good working conditions. And after a while, there was also a draft. But and and so, you know, the men from these villages went to the army and then they, you know, worked with the Hungarians, they were the Austrians, you know, and they brought these dances back to their villages. And so, for example, in the Lemko suite that we do in in Mazure, for example, those men uh, were sent off to the Austro-Hungarian army and they came back and they used this dance to kind of show off to the girls like, hey, check out these moves that we learned in the army. Like, <laughs> like check out how masculine we are, you know, and you know, this is how we learned to dance with those girls. Like, we're gonna bring this back here. So so really it's kind of interesting as well. And and in different parts of Poland as well, because that was from the east. In the west part, in for example, our Cheshire dances, the thing that ends those is our chardash Slonsky, or silesian chardash which starts out very slow with very small movements and then all of a sudden starts going yum and all of a sudden starts, you know, really kind of lively, uh, you know, I, I guess a circle kind of polka. But in, in particular, Polish folk dance and Ukrainian folk dance can be classified into two different groups. Uh, the first being national dances and the second being regional dances. The difference here is, is that national dances were thought of dances that really appealed to the national character dances that uh, were danced in, like, Polish salons. And, and in Poland, there are five, Pol- like, national dances. And in Ukraine, there is the one, the hopak, which is meant to be the character of Ukraine. Yeah.
0: That's so interesting. So do we know how they they came to be? Those, those regional dances were developed, those national dances were developed?
1: Yes, yeah. So the national dances really, for the most part, I guess about... Three, three out of uh, five of them kind of developed in the salon. the The five Polish national dances are the polonaise, the mazur, the oberek, the kujawiak, and the krakowiak. And if you don't mind, I'll just go into detail into these a little bit because I I just love studying the national dances yes, and the history behind them.
0: I think that's incredible. Uh, Our listeners and I would love that. Of
1: course. <laughs> so, so the polonaise is the oldest Polish dance. And the earliest trace of it came in 1406 and, and it appeared in the Silesian Chronicle. Silesia uh, exists in the southwest of Poland, in that little quadrant. And so when they were having a the ball there, someone just happened to write it down. And then in 1574, someone, someone else mentioned the Polonaise in, during the coronation of Henry Valois. Uh, Valois. In which, in which this guest actually described it, it wasn't known as the Polonaise at that point. It was known as the Polish dance. And that, and that is how the uh, essentially the nobility and the bourgeoisie described it at that point. And then, I mean, anytime before the 18th century, there were numerous references of the Polonaise uh, coming from accounts of, of pretty much like a whole bunch of foreigners that stayed at the Polish court. According to their descriptions, it was a walking dance with plenty of bows and plenty of uh, accents with plenty of like, really, it was meant to either open or close a ball to kind of, you know, greet your guests, kind of say hello, kind of, you know, like look at who I'm dancing with this kind of thing. (laughs) And, and really it was, and the really quite interesting, the, the, the people that came to these balls really dressed in their best ball gowns for the ceremonial day. Dance. the tempo is is pretty moderate and and really there's kind of like dignified attitude like a, a form of chivalry in this dance and and really i think it's really quite interesting and there there's still like ongoing uh research going on in Poland through all you know, all kinds of instructors and, you know, r- researchers to try to figure out, you know, what was the Polonaise be- like between like this time period? What was it between like the like the 18th century? Was it, you know, 19th century? Because, you know, as a dance, you know, naturally between these hundreds of years can evolve. And in fact, even I, I learned the last time I was in Poland, uh, this last summer, that there's even some deliberation uh, between this one step that we do in our dance group, in which we kind of make a window with our arms uh, between uh, pairs, because that, according to some historians, uh, was more meant was was more prevalent in a minuet rather than a polonaise. But the truth. We're not sure.
2: And I would like to interject here, sorry, that Marie knows all about the window hold because she does that hold in Atlanta Historic Dance for, I know, Duke of Kent's Waltz, but I've done that that. hold in the minuet. So I think there could be some cross-pollination there, but that's not my area of expertise. Yes, so. I didn't know it was
0: called the window hold, though. I always just was like, it's the traditional, like more traditional waltz hold um, because that was the first waltz hold was when you have your hands up over your arms. Your, of course your hands are <laughs> up, But you, you have your arms over so your well. head for the waltz. Mm-hmm. My husband and I actually did that as part of our wedding dance too. And for our listeners who are, maybe having trouble visualizing this. That waltz hold is done in the live action version of Cinderella while the prince and Cinderella are waltzing. If that gives anybody a cultural reference, maybe that'll help them visualize it. Um, But I would love to... Maybe dive in a little bit more to this idea of having national dances. Caroline, if you could perhaps give us some cause insight into that, because it has to help with the national identity of a group of people, as, as well as the enjoyment of the people doing it. And I'm, I'm intrigued by that, because I don't think in America we have a national dance.
2: We don't, and we should not. Now, I will say that there have been many attempts to create a national dance for the United States. But it's a very tricky prospect because whose dance will it be? We are a nation of so many different cultures, as any nation is really. And who gets to decide which dance that will be? Because there are agendas behind those kinds of decisions. And there have been numerous attempts to make the quote unquote square dance, the national dance of the United States. It is the state dance of Georgia.
0: Oh, i didn't know we had a state dance yes
2: i think the square dance is the official state dance of about 16 states now that initiative was brought forward by henry ford the automaker so there are reasons for that and i won't get into that today that's our next podcast i say that
0: sounds like a wonderful podcast i'm ready oh
2: don't get me started about henry ford and square dance but the the gist of that one is that you know, there, there can't really be a national dance for the United States. However, that's because of our situation. It's very important for some cultural groups to identify themselves through dancing as a cultural identity marker. So different cultures have ways of coming together, and that can include music, it can include food, or a particular way of wearing clothing, and it can also include dance. And for some cultures, there's no distinction between dancing and music or dancing and clothing. You know, we have that distinction right now for us in this conversation in the United States. Dances are cultural identity markers for many different people. And in some cases, they can be forms of resistance. Area has been taken over by an invading force. You might not be able to do these dances out in public, but in secret, people continue to do them as a way of preserving not only movement, but also language, clothing, music, food, a reason to get together and a way of relating with each other. So they can serve as a form of resistance, but they can also serve as a form of celebration. You know, this is something that I grew up doing and I find myself again when I do it now. I find it fascinating to work with Maciej and Masaryk Dance Company because we have started including Ukrainian dance and now Maciej is teaching Polish and Ukrainian dance to adults and children. And the Ukrainian community is really finding a sense of comfort in that shared culture, but also people who are not Ukrainian are finding a way to show their support and connection for the Ukrainian people. So it's a very powerful way of people coming together to to celebrate, share culture and connect with other people.
0: And that brings us into my next question perfectly, because I wanted to talk about what you wear while performing these folk dances.
1: Yes. So, so really it's a giant, you know, like, that's a really good question because like I said earlier, Polish dances subdivided into two, two parts. You've got your national dances and your regional dances. Poland itself has over a hundred different micro regions and and based off that you know the, the costumes are all different you know based off it was really based off a number of things either you know a religion, be you know, who, you know, who they were most recently taken over by. See like the ge- geographical divide, the, you know, and, and, uh, and you know, a, a bunch of other topics, like even like, like two villages, split, you know, by river, like can have two different dances and two, you know, two different like costumes. And we see evidence of that in, for example, in Eastern Poland, in the villages of Bugodai and the Tatmogród uh, Lasowiadze people, and they argue between themselves like all the time, like, is this dance ours, this dance yours, like, you know, it's, <laughs> I see it all the time. And so for, for some of the national dances, for example, the Polonaise and the mazur you have to go back to your historical roots. These are mo- mostly salon dances, danced by aid the nobility, and so you, have, you can either wear the Polish nobility outfits or the Polish uh, legionnaires. Who, sorry, the, the officers of the Polish legions in the Napoleonic era, when Napoleon came uh, came to Poland, freed the country for a period of, I believe, it was about fifteen to twenty years. And while, and uh, in fact, the country was so you know so entranced by Napoleon and the French that like even now he's in our national anthem. <laughs> and so and so essentially the costumes of the French French army, Polish uh, the, the Polish uh, legions from that army stayed in the culture and 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 that's an, another uh thing that you could dance that uh the polonaise and the mazarin the oberek and the kwiabiak two more national dances uh both originate from uh, mazovia and kwiabi which are in central poland and traditionally what you see uh polish dance groups dressed in for these are are uh, dresses and costumes from the village of Łowicz, which which boasts pretty much I mean, probably one of the most famous costumes that you'll see from Poland. Uh, you'll see like a black corset with some beautifully embroidered flowers, and and then almost like a rainbow skirt, the black trim and an embroidery around the base there too. And it's just such a beautiful costume that a lot of these dance groups uh, do take it, you know, and and perform these two dances with them. Uh, with the last national dance, the Krakowiak, which is probably the most patriotic of the national dances the, the the dance itself comes from the city of krakow which is in southern central poland which is the cultural capital of poland and this dance was originally only danced by by people who lived in the city of krakow and the surrounding suburbs however due to two major people uh you had today's kosciuszko and then you had Kazimierz Pulaski, who shares some heritage here in Georgia, fighting alongside Washington and ultimately dying near Savannah. And and due to this patriotic nature patriot, of these two fighters, they the Polish people, uh, well, Kosciuszko was alive and was able to come back to Poland and fight various insurrections. Due to this, these people essentially the character of this dance formed all across Poland because it was it was deemed that you know if if Kosciuszko, if Kosciuszko can help the United States, you know, claim its independence, then he can do the same here in Poland. And so, because he was from Krakow, these dances kind of exploded and it, it was it was really kind of like a national kind of cultural phenomenon and and namely this dance is the only one that's done in two four out of all of the five national dances but going back to our regional dances yes like like i said we have a, like a giant majority of like uh, costumes that can be worn they were primarily wool depending but also depends on the region what kind of textiles and what kind of trading routes also were were going through that city uh, because for example some major trading posts in the south like uh, like basically trading posts like for example the city of zbigats and and Krakow, i mean they they had like i guess traders from like turkey and iran and everywhere else where they were they had access to gold thread they had access to like just, just some really you know nice stuff and that's reflected in the costumes as well.
0: Do you have a favorite costume to wear while performing?
1: Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's such a hard question. I, I love them all. However, oh, let me get back to you on that. Okay. <laughs>
2: um, I love yeah. boots. I, I, <laughs> um, I really love, we have these uh, for the women. We wear different shoes depending on different, the different dances and the regions. And it's, it's it's taken very seriously because again, these costumes are really connected to people's lives and cultures and they have meaning. So if there's, and I'm spitballing here, if there's a particular flower that grows in a particular region, then that would be on the costuming. But if it appeared to somewhere else, it's a different costume, it would be inappropriate. But I do love, we have these black lace-up boots that are black with red laces. And I love clicking my heels in those. (laughs) But there are these shoes from mountainous regions, which are flat, sort of leather. um, I wouldn't say sandals, but they're flat and they're leather. And those are the shoes that are worn, correct me if I'm wrong, Machi, by the people in those more mountainous regions. And I can't click my heels in those because of the way they're constructed. So it does affect the movement.
1: Right, absolutely, yeah. Those shoes, uh, known as kiepca or an Ukrainian postoli, were were meant for the mountains because, I mean, realistically, you really couldn't walk up a mountain in heels. You know, you wouldn't want to. <laughs> so, <laughs> so and uh, you know, the shoes reflected uh, the environment and essentially what kind of what, what kind what kind of uh, materials you had around you as well. Sometimes they were those were made of pigskin. Sometimes they were made of cowhide, and and even occasionally, this is one thing we don't wear. You wear, you wear really thick wool socks with that and, and a, almost like a leather string that kind of goes around uh, your, I guess, attaches to that shoe and goes up to kind of, you know, really reinforce that shoe being on there.
0: That's so cool. Costuming and historical fashion and folk costuming. I just love all of that. So to hear all of the different things about, you know, it's so specific to so you know, the region, the time, the place, the resources, I think that's incredibly fascinating. Now, I was wondering for our listeners, can you tell us some of the main differences between the folk dances that you do? And then some perhaps what we would consider like, quote unquote, like ballroom dance that we see kind of like on Dancing with the Stars, because some of the same words have kind of been thrown around like polka. So I was just wondering if you could kind of give us a why? Why is it different?
1: Mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot of similarities of course there's partner dancing and you know and especially in terms of national dances you know there is more poise there is more more character more kind of like you have to be rigid with the rules you have to be like, in terms of folk dances in the in these regions it is more rowdy it's not something that would be accepted on you know a ballroom floor for example the Obedek in terms of national dance that one never actually made it on the salon because it was deemed as just too rowdy and and you know nobility couldn't really find a way to to tone it down and <laughs> and I, although it is a fantastic dance it's it's feverish it's like it's it's so fast it's the turns the like everything it, it really is beautiful but 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 they are more you know like just kind of show like like a manly kind of like the men kind of show like more of a like like a manly kind of power, you know, you throw your throw your weight around. We're asking these national dances really, like the 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 men's focus is to show off the dexterity and their temperament. Versus in folk dance, you know, you dance because you like this girl. You know, you want to show off. You want to, but in a way that's like, here, come dance with me. You know, like we're we're gonna have a good time, <laughs> but without a whole a whole lot of rules that apply to ballroom.
0: Now, could you let our listeners know? where they could see your group perform and see these dances come to life themselves.
1: Of course, yeah. So we have a number of performances coming up. Later this year, we're headed down to Houston, Texas to perform at the Polish Folk Dance Association of America's 40th anniversary gala. Uh, We belong to this organization since last year. And really, it's it's a fantastic organization, full of dance groups from the U.S. and Canada, who all care about Polish folk dance. And we meet together like once or twice a year for workshops, for uh, for parties, for really for a good time. And and we're and for the 40th anniversary this year, we're presenting uh, two dances on their main stage alongside about maybe eight or nine different groups.
0: That sounds amazing, and you know our listeners come from all over the country, so. And it sounds like you're going all over. You're going all to all over the southeast. So hopefully, that's right. No matter where our listeners are, even if they're out of state, they still might have a chance to see you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are there any other things that you were like, ah, I wanted to say this, and I didn't get a chance to moments, or any questions you wished I would have asked to get those that information?
1: Not really. Caroline looked like she had something to say just a little bit ago. I
2: always have something to say. All the time. Well, I, you know, what I think is so wonderful is that these dances are living practices. So even though the roots of them, you know, we can say, oh, this comes from the 19th century. This comes from the 18th century. This comes from the 1920s in Warsaw. These are living traditions that, you know, some people might be more interested in the historical elements Some people are just interested and some people just enjoy it. This really came home for me when Maciej took us to Canada in the spring. We went to a a festival there, let's say. And there were a lot of different groups performing different kinds of dances. And then there was a special dinner, a formal dinner held for everyone. And the dinner opened with everyone participating in a Polonaise. And it was just fantastic that all these different people came together from all over and could do a polonaise together. So these dances are really meaningful and have different kinds of meaning for different people. The other thing uh, that I love to say is that Macha offers classes for a wide variety. So people who don't think that they consider themselves dancers, There are classes for you that he teaches. We have, you know, if you get more interested in it or you're already an experienced dancer, we have the performing group that I'm a part of. And we would love to have more men in the group. We have several men already who are fantastic dancers and they have a lot of fun. Hootin' and hollerin'. There's a lot of, (laughs) as we say in Texas, you know, there are lots of really exciting dances for the men, Um, You know, women can learn those steps, too. But we would love to have more people in any of the classes or the performing group. Yeah, more merrier. I think everybody can dance.
0: Everyone can dance. That's
2: right. That's
1: right. Yeah, we're always looking for dancers.
2: Yeah, like Carolyn
1: said, you know, you don't need to be experienced. You know, if you're looking for, you know, a really fun time with some really fun people, yeah, come by. We have two two sets of classes. We so I teach on Saturdays at the Ukrainian School of Atlanta. There there's a children's group and there's an adult group over there, and that happens in Alpharetta. Um, and then on Sundays we have the adult practices from twelve o'clock to two o'clock in Doraville at the Volga Dance Academy. So like I said, everyone anyone is welcome. You don't need a Polish background. You don't need you know don't need to speak Polish. Like, this, I don't this class is really meant for, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, like, this is really meant for anyone that's looking for, you know, like to meet new people and to have fun.
2: That
0: sounds wonderful. Now, I do have to have one last question, and that is, how did you choose the name for your group?
1: So the name really came from, I really wanted something unique. In in the U.S., there are a lot of different groups. I mean, there's there's about like 20 different Polish dance groups in Chicago itself. And and a lot of them are named like Polonia or Polania, which references pretty much the first tribes of Poland and, you know, reference to Poland itself. However, in order to stay kind of relevant, kind of unique, kind of, you know, I guess, make a name for ourselves in the U.S. Yeah, I chose to uh, to name the dance group Missouri, uh, which comes from the region of Mazuria in the northeast uh, section of Poland.
0: Very cool. I was just like, I, I want to know why. <laughs> um, I always right. am interested about why people name things certain things. Well, we'll be
2: mm-hmm. sure to have a... Oh, yes. Carolyn. Of course, I have one more thing to say. Um. I just like to impress, you know, upon people in terms of dance in the United States. And I was thinking about this in terms of connecting, you know, what we do with the Northeast Georgia History Center and thinking about, you know, the um, people coming to Georgia. A lot of Polish people did immigrate to cities like Chicago. So it makes sense to me that there are a lot of groups there. And I originally come from Texas. And so... I'm familiar with the German and Czech populations that went there and actually built a lot of dance halls in order to maintain a community center for the German culture, for the Czech culture. A lot of these dance halls still exist. Not so many Polish immigration stories I could find with Georgia specifically. It's also a lot older as a state than Texas um, and Illinois. There are very vibrant communities in the Atlanta area and in Georgia of people with ancestry from Poland, from Eastern Europe, and I very much enjoyed getting to know about that Mm -hmm. because it's a very multicultural area and sometimes in our day-to-day lives, we don't really get to connect with these other cultures, but you know they come from all over the world and they're very vibrant. Going to an international festival is one way, like the international night market, to really step out of the bubble and reconnect with these neighbors that we have and that make up our history, which is, of course, right now, um, and connecting the past and the present and the future all together. Okay, I'm off on one of my idealistic jaunts, <laughs> and the world hold hands and sing and dance together in perfect harmony. That's never but- uh, If
1: I may, I kind of want to pick up on uh, just just real quick, just on that topic of you know Polish migration to the U.S. Because of course Georgia is really not known for its you know Polish populations or anything, but that really dates back to initial like colonial times, and because Georgia was initially a Protestant colony. And, you know, and basically if you weren't Protestant, you weren't able to live here for the most part. And, and the only colony that Polish people were able to settle in was Maryland because that one was Queen Mary's, who was Catholic. And, and so that was, I thought that was a really interesting kind of point. But also in terms of Texas, one of my fellow colleagues, he teaches agriculture and actually Polish Texan history at University of Texas. And to hear him talk about this is just fascinating. The four waves of migration to Polish migration to Texas, and how they all settled along like this one river, like all these Polish villages. And to see which kinds of people like moved there and what they moved there for, and how they helped even Texas, you know, essentially the American Army gain you know independence, you know, from Mexico and, you know, help Texas become a US state with with the help of Polish generals is really just a fascinating topic as well. So really that's all I had to say.
2: Yeah, that's- Mind officially blown. Didn't know that about Georgia being a Protestant colony. This is, I'm gonna be thinking about this.
0: We actually just had our founding of Georgia homeschool day, literally yesterday that Carolyn came and helped with. And we had uh, a religion station, which was led by Bennett, who is also a Reverend in the Methodist church. And he talked about how, well, basically you there were a lot of Methodists, uh, a lot of Anglicans. Um, there was also a significant Jewish population, but the one religion that was not allowed that was actually banned was Catholicism because they were concerned about Spanish Florida. And didn't want any of the Spanish coming over because that was like why Georgia essentially got the charter, is because they were going to be a nice big buffer between Spanish Florida and the Port of Charleston.
2: Oh, um, that makes sense. The classic Georgia Florida relationship anxiety. (laughs) Yes. Wow.
0: It all comes together.
2: (laughs) I learned something today. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and hopefully our listeners learn things as well. I know I learned so much today, just getting to, to get to like sit and talk to both of you. It's always amazing. I love dance. I love dance history. I've been dancing. I did ballet as a kid and some jazz and some tap. And now I do historical dance with, with Carolyn and uh, Kat with Atlanta Historic Dance, but I just absolutely love dance. And thank you again so much for being taking time out of your day to, to talk to us and for our listeners to, to get to learn about your experiences is wonderful. Do you all have any final thoughts before we close?
1: I, I think that's it for me. I really appreciate, you know, being a part of this podcast and, you know, really happy that, you know, you guys are doing this. I think it's it's a fantastic thing, really.
2: And make sure to put Machi's Facebook, the Majori Facebook um, link on your website so that people can find the group and join us and have a great time.
0: Yes, absolutely. We'll have your links down in the podcast description so people can find y'all.
1: That's right, like and subscribe. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Again, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful.
1: Of course, thank you.
2: Always a pleasure, you too. Then Again is a production
0: of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by Andrews Gilles. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.